So, so how is the harvest so far? What's your impressions? Is it good grapes? Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, the, the story obviously goes back to April when the frosts did so much damage. Uh, but people have learned now and this time around not to sort of cry disaster too much because that was a problem in 2016 um, when, because of the frost, everybody said disaster, catastrophe, and people therefore out in the world assumed that the quality couldn't be any good, whereas the story was about the volume. So this time around, uh, everyone just said, we're not going to make much wine, but we'll have to find out later whether the quality will be any good. And it's not been a particularly easy summer, uh, but September has been pretty good weather. Um, and people were thinking of starting around about the 15th. It was a bit wet at the beginning of that week, so they pushed it back a couple of days. And lovely weather, Friday, Saturday last week, and Tuesday onwards this week. It did rain on Sunday and Monday. Um, but it's beautiful with a north wind, which dries things out. And the grape's looking healthy, but it's going to be sort of more like a 12.5 alcohol vintage rather than a 14 plus, which is, I think, great news. Suits me at any rate. Uh, seems to be plenty of taste in the in the grapes. A uh, little bit of rot that will need to be sorted out, but you know that's easy to do these days on the sourcing tables. People know how to manage that. So it should be a pretty decent vintage. Um, uh, I've seen more in the way of reds than I have of whites so far, and whites will be even smaller in quantity because the Chardonnay grape was a bit more advanced when the frost happened. So uh, yeah, so so probably going to suit reds better than whites. And um, so we picked this morning, and uh, I saw Guillaume Dangeville, Marquis Dangeville, was picking the Claude Duke today. Um, yeah, the Ospice de Bone will finish probably tomorrow. Um, and they're quite happy. So, yes, we just would like to have had more of it. And then so, the so prices like will be a, more reasonable. So, if it's a 12 and a half degree alcohol type yeah. level, are we thinking this is like a 17 again? Or because it's clearly not 18, 19, 20, right? No, clearly not 18, 19, 20. Uh, there could be an element of 17, um, could be an element of 16. Um, uh, I think if people pick the whites too late, then that might get ugly the way it was in 13. Um, but I think most people, I think the Cote de Bain is pretty much going to finish by the weekend. Um, <clears throat> So, you know, I'd rather wait till I can taste the wines, but it's all those sorts of vintages uh, are the ones. So anyone who should have been so fortunate as to ha have had a child in 2021 will obviously be queuing up for a few barrels. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm allowed to, Jesper. Is there a baby Bilby? There is a baby Philby. Yes. Yeah. Actually, you'll like the name Arabella. Okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Arabella Philby. Could have been Koala. Yeah. So there was a deal where Chris Koala said, if that's it's somewhere that my daughter was called Koalette, then I'll be able to pick any bottle that I wanted from his cellar. Um, unfortunately, I, I think he's got to sweeten the deal a little bit more than that. So. Yeah, we didn't get past the wife, unfortunately. Yeah. That's a pretty good deal. All I can say is you better not go. And, you better not go and live in Bristol because there's a Bristol accent. She'll come out as Arabella Bilbo. <laughs> Actually, the same thing is in in Beijing as well. Sorry, the sort of Cornish. Oh, yeah. Oh, here, 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 here. 
Oh, actually, while you're there, the attendant. See you in your standard work gear. I've never seen him not in a either t-shirt, polo, jeans. Hey, how are you? Yeah, let's let's get going. Jasper, should we kick it off? Yeah, sure. Are you waiting for more people, or we start anyway? Yes, but I think we can get going because they said that we should start first. Okay. Right. So um, you have got, I've got somewhere or other, uh, uh, a list of the wines which you're going to be uh, enjoying. Just get that uh, also on my screen so I can see what's what at the same time. Um, so we've got nothing super recent then from Ravenel. It's 2010 or maybe a 2011, uh, going back a bit, um, which would be fun. And why don't um, I start talking about... Um, what happens today at the domain, uh, and then go back um, and, and, and start. Well, I'll, no, I'll start with the, the sort of the prehistory, if you like. So Ravenau has been around in Chablis for a very long time. Um, the first I'm aware of was uh, Lucien Ravenau, who um, flourished in the second half of the 19th and first bit of the 20th century. And he owned a load of Chablis vineyards, but he didn't actually work there. Um, he just sort of li lived off the profit from the land. And in those days, apparently, that was quite doable. But then his son, Louis, the father of Francois, um, who was born in 1896, he decided to try to do the same thing and sort of live off unearned income. But uh, the vineyards weren't as valuable at that point, with the result that uh, he had to uh, dip into capital and actually had to sell off a number of his vineyards. Which So otherwise, this domain would have been considerably bigger than it is today. And in fact, I don't think of what they have now, I think rather more comes through the Dovisar side of the family rather than Ravenau. So um, we will, we will um, come on to that because uh, actually Louis Ravenau had seven children, for whom only one really matters to us, which is Francois, born in 1921. And he married a Miss Dovisar, André Dovisar. So who uh, would, would have been the aunt of Vincent de Vissart and sister of René. So they actually got as uh, wedding presents various vineyards which were unplanted, but vineyard land, um, and uh, from both sides of the family. And then later on, uh, André de Vissart got her share of de Vissart vineyards, um, which went to Francois. So Francois really... Uh, put it on the map. He was uh, having a lot of success selling his wine into smart restaurants. And an earlier generation of international importers, the way you found a good producer was by going to eat at the Michelin three-star restaurants and uh, and sort of drinking off the list and asking the sommelier and then going to see the people if you like the wine. Um, so that, that was, uh, alas, before my time, but that was uh, a standard practice of doing it. So Francois built the fame of the domain, and he was the first one who really began systematic um, domain bottling. Um, and he continued, he started sort of trying to retire a bit earlier, probably in the 70s, uh, because uh, he has four children, and of them, two boys, two girls, 
Um, I don't know where the girls fit into the picture, but uh, it sounds as though they would have left their share of the vines uh, in the family operation. Um, but uh, eldest son, Bernard, born in 1950, and youngest son, Jean-Marie, born in 55. But it would seem that Francois wasn't a particularly easy person to sort of get on with in the family. And apparently he also didn't find it terribly easy with his father uh, to get on with. Um, so Bernard didn't want to come into the family business. And um, instead, he went off. He got a job with a company called Reignard, also known as Albert Pic, as uh, another sort of sous of that um, mostly négociant business which had a great reputation um, in the 70s and before um, because there was a lovely man called Michel Raymond who ran it and the wines were high quality and we used to see a lot of them in England. Um, so uh, he worked there from um, the 70s through to 92 uh, and then Michel Raymond died and, uh, and the succession wasn't the same, so he left. He went off to the small village of Vézelay um, which is now an Appalachian, but wasn't then, and got involved in some vineyards there for a couple of years. And in 95, he came back and joined his, um, his brother, Jean-Marie. So Jean-Marie, however, uh, the younger brother, five years younger, he, <coughs> he started working almost directly during the um, 70s after he'd finished his studies. He started working with his dad. Um, I think he joined him in 78, so got involved in the 79 harvest. To begin with, it was Francois, then I think Jean-Marie had a go at it. Then I think Francois sort of took it back because he said, no, 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 you're doing it all wrong or something along those lines. And Francois finally retired, having made the 88 vintage. Um, and uh, several of you around the table um, with me uh, have drunk 89s from both Dovisa and uh, Raveneau. First of all, at the Tour d'Argent in Paris and Secondly, after uh, some of you hoovered up all the Dovisar bottles you could find in the marketplace. And at that period, to my taste, these two uh, sort of parallel domains, if you like, um, I think uh, Dovisar was in the ascendancy around about the changeover, the end of Francois and the beginning of Jean-Marie. Uh, I, I would put um, Dovisar ahead. Prior to that, I think Raveneau had the better reputation uh, and probably today, uh, Raveneau has once again, once again, sort of gone ahead in people's thinking. Um, so these are obviously very, uh, two very close demands. Uh, there are no other Raveneaux around making wine in um, Chablis. There are quite a few other Dovisars, mostly not relations, not, not close relations. Uh, but there is one domain, a Cave Jean et Sebastian um, Dovisar, which is right next door to Raveneau because Guy Raveneau make their wines uh, in Chablis was originally part of Dovisar, uh, a branch of the Dovisars. Um, I don't recommend, uh, I'm afraid, Jean and Sebastien um, uh, Dovisar at all at the moment. This can change. Um, and the, but there is another Dovisar domain, uh, which is confusingly called Jean Dovisar, but not Jean et Sebastien. It's very big onion, uh, which is very good but they're not close relatives, if at all. Um, so anyway, so uh, when I first got involved in wine during the 80s, I would occasionally buy some Raveneau wines from uh, Anthony Hansen, Haynes Hansen and Clark, who were one of the agents in the UK. Uh, and there were some pretty fabulous bottles. Um, 
the winemaking hasn't changed enormously. It is changing a bit now, but what's weird is that I think Ravenau has been sort of top of the tree, and if anything, it's getting better. So um, Bernard Ravenau, he's now this year, he'll be 71, uh, so he's retired uh, fully. You might see him around, but he's no longer taking a hands-on role in the domain. He's incidentally got involved in planting some brand new land even further north. Um, there's a city called Joanny, which has a two or three-star restaurant, the Côte Saint-Jacques. And just north of that, there's a city called Sens, S-E-N-S, um, which used to be, in medieval times, the northern boundary of Burgundy. And Bernard Ravenau is involved with some people planting um, new, for this century at any rate, vineyard land up there. Anyway, he's retired. Jean-Marie, who's had a bad back for a little while now, um, he's he hasn't really been involved in the winemaking since Bernard arrived in 1995, but he is now beginning also to take a, a back seat and uh, is probably pretty much fully retired as of either this year or next year, um, when he will be, what he's 66 now. So fair enough, and uh, two of the next generation, cousins rather than brother and sister, have taken over. They won't have made, however, any of the wines that we're um, tasting now. Um, but uh, Isabel, who is daughter of Bernard, arrived. She was born in 1983, and I think she arrived at the domain in 2010. And her cousin Maxime, who was born in 1990, and is the son of Jean-Marie, he arrived in 2018 or 19. Um, and they worked together uh, in harmony. Um, I had a lovely interview with them in the vineyards, in that Blanchot vineyard, for one of the 67 Pall Mall television programs. And they obviously get on well. And they have different responsibilities because Isabel makes all the wine and uh, Maxime is basically in charge in the vineyards. And uh, something, a, a remark I saw, uh, was that this could never have happened in the past because uh, Francois absolutely wouldn't have approved of allowing women in the winery at all at all. Didn't, didn't think that was correct. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he, he had uh, uh, um, sisters who, who um, might easily have got involved in those days. <laughs> anyway, um, that's the background. Um, if I just say a little bit about the winemaking, unless you want to ask any questions on what we're going to Incidentally, I'm just getting feedback, which I wasn't before. I don't know. Are you hearing me in echo or are you just hearing me normally? Normally. Oh, very good. Oh, good. Okay. I will ignore the echo. So, for Scott's benefit, it might possibly interfere with the um, uh, recording. Um, okay. So, on the winemaking, um, what we expect normally in White Burgundy and would be the case for the great majority of people in the Cook Door is that you grow your grapes, you press them, got your juice, put your juice into barrel, ferment it in barrel, and then keep it in barrel for as long as you want, but maybe do a second winter in stainless steel. Um, some, some people would bottle after one year, and some people would keep it for a year and a half still in barrel, but more often these days, people will take it out of barrel after the first year. Uh, in Chablis, wood is much less common in general. Um, obviously, people used to before stainless steel arrived. People did make the wine in barrels, but they were old barrels, and it was just a just a container rather than the concept of having any wood influence or flavour in the wine. 
So once stainless steel had come, uh, come in, that became the norm. Some people um, fermented in barrel and then, or part barrel and part tank, and then after six months, say, they blend the two together and finish off in tank. So that would be what domains like Benoit Drouin and William Febvre do today. Um, other people, specifically Raveneau and Dovisa, and to those we can ally um, domain Laurent Tribute, because they're part of the Dovisa family, uh, and also um, Edouard and Eleni Vaucare, because Eleni trained with Vincent Dovisa. So those two domains also follow Raveneau and Dovisa. But their version of doing things is they do all the fermentation in tanks of some sort, be they concrete or stainless steel. Uh, and only in March of uh, the next year do they take the barrels out of the tank and they bring them down into the barrel cellar and they go into wood. Uh, more often older wood uh, than not. Um, and then they spend one year in barrel before being taken out and prepared for bottling. So, so that's the classic Dovisar uh, Raveneau method. Um, in the old days, you would have a mix of the standard burgundy barrel of 228 litres and lots of Chablis barrels, or feuillette, as they're called, which are 132 litres. Um, nobody uses them anymore in any volume apart from Vincent Dovisar, who still keeps maybe up to 40% of his barrel um, his barrel park, as I would say in the States, uh, is actually these little foyettes, and he remains enamored of them. Raveneau used to have them as well, but they had a very small cellar. Um, if you actually go to the Raveneau domain, you'll see outside, there's a picture of a vigneron uh, who's actually in his vineyard, and he's got his pickaxe, his pioche, um, and he's sort of trying to dig into the ground, but it looks as though he's hunched over. And if when I go down the classic entry into the cellar there, I've got to bend double to get in there. And you could see that once down there, you wouldn't, you'd hardly have room for full-size barrels. In 2012, Raveneau uh, built themselves a new cellar, sort of an extension out of the back of the building. And that's enabled them to have new size barrels and way more space in which to work. And it's been a real godsend. And I think it is one of the key aspects of the further increase in quality Chez Raveneau. Um, and just recently, and this really is quite recently, let's say the last three, four, five vintages, they have begun to use a bit more new oak because they never tried to have much new oak influence. Um, and they've also started using bigger barrels. So it's still mostly 228 litres, one or two of these 132 litre foyettes, but now they have 400, 500 and 600 litre barrels as well. Um, but they will there will be a blend, and there still won't be a dominance of new wood, even though they use a bit more than they did in the past. And there's one curiosity. Um, who was I with? Michael, it wasn't, I don't think it was uh, um, with you and that team when we went to um, Ophiel Duzanc. I think it was with a different uh, uh, set when um, Fabien, who kept the restaurant, then after we'd had one good bottle, I was looking for another bottle. He said, I tell you what, Jasper, I've got something tucked away i'll bring it i'll serve it to you blind if you get what it is it's free if not you pay what you think it's worth and i said okay let's try that sorry if you a couple of you may have heard this story before um so he brings the bottle and i can just see about you know two percent of the capsule 
but enough to guess that it's a Raveneau capsule. Uh, so, so I think, oh, yeah, I'm smell the wine. Yes, I think that's probably from Domaine Raveneau. Um, and it's clearly quite old, and it's clearly a year with a certain amount, a rich year, with even a bit of Betraceus, possibly noble rock. And so I start thinking, I think that could be a 1983, and I can see in Fabien's eyes that it's not, 19, not 1983. So I say, but actually, it's not quite as rich as that. So it's about that period. The other vintage at that time, which had a bit of noble rock, was 1986. So it is a Raveneau 1986. And I guess correctly that there's a premier crew rather than a grand crew, but I guess the wrong vineyard. It was a Buteau and uh, I guess Monte de Tonnerre. So uh, strictly speaking, he should have charged us for it, but he didn't. Since then, it came on the list of Field du Zinc at, a, at a 220 Euro, euros a bottle. So I'm glad he didn't charge us. But the reason I started that story was they did an experiment in 1986, which would have been just when Jean-Marie was really sort of making some of the calls. And he put it 100% into new oak, and they hated the wine. So they never sold it. They just they just had it piled up at the back. And one day when Fabien, who had the Au Fil du Sac, uh, he was visiting the cellar to taste the new stuff, he said, what's that pile of bottles over there which never seems to move? And um, they said, oh, well, that was a, something we tried, didn't really work out. Let's try one. And they tried one, and you could still taste the new oak even after 30-some years. Um, but it was interesting enough. But uh, Fabian said, oh, I wouldn't mind some of that. And uh, whichever Ravno he's talking to said, sure, you can have it. Take it all. Why not? So uh, uh, it appeared on the list at Ophiel du Zag. So um, the wines we've got then will have been made mostly by Bernard Ravno. So between 95 and 2010 would have been certainly Bernard, probably a bit later than 2010. Um, the ones that you're uh, having tonight, which are a little bit older than that, will have been made by Jean-Marie. So it'll be interesting to see if you perceive uh, a sweet spot in the... Uh, uh, let me just check on the list, see what else you've got. Um, if there's a sweet spot in the Bernard Ravenot years. Um, but, 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 but before that, so mostly, almost everything is is him. You've got a 90 and a 93. Um, oh, the 93 is Vincent Dovisa. So you've got just the 90 Blanchot Grand Cru, which would have been made by um, Jean-Marie. Okay, uh, everybody happy so far? Any comments? Very Anybody? good. Yeah. And um, we're comparing the Vaillon de Forêt and the Torres from Dovisar. Okay. I find it very interesting that we're putting in the first flight the uh, Dovisar versus Carrado. Same vintage, right? Yes, where, which is which is ten of ten, if I remember rightly. Let's just have a, a little scroll through, see what you got. Okay, so uh, Vaillon is not um, a vineyard that's um, as well known chez Raveneau as uh, some of the others. Uh, it's a vineyard which I think, when Jean Marie got involved, he was given some again vineyard land which hadn't been planted up. So this is very end of the seventies. So. It would have got planted up in, a, in around 1980. So it would have been 30 years old at the time. It includes a fraction of the Sabia di Seche, but not enough, um, not enough to make on its own. So that goes into the Vaillant blend. Um, and in fact, there's, um, um, there's a story that at one point during the sort of Dovisar inheritance, um, it was going to be Francois Raveneau who got the Seche instead of it going to. Um, uh, René Dovisa, 
But René Dubassat loved that vineyard and Francois never felt comfortable in it. So he said, no, you can have that and I'll take something else. Uh, I don't know if that's gospel truth, but I've certainly heard that story. So you've got a little flight of three 2010s, is that correct? You've got yeah. Vaillant Forêt, Forest. For, 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 yeah, still pronounced Forêt, but written Forest. Okay. Yeah, that's just a quirk of Vincent Dubassat for some reason, pronouncing it that way. I love 2010 as a Chablis vintage. I think it's one of the years where Chablis did better than the Cote d'Or whites. Um, not by a huge amount, because Cote d'Or whites are pretty good in 2010. But it was a bit stormy down, in, in particularly in chassain Morinchet in 2010. And a, a certain amount of Petrates got in, whereas it's a bit cleaner up in, um, in classic Chablis. Uh, so sadly, I can't place these wines with you. So um, it would be good to get your, get your feedback. Obviously, Vaillant and Forêt or Forest are close to each other. They're both on the left bank. Um, they are equivalent hillsides, but just first is uh, a south um, east facing slope in one valley, and then the, the valley, the hillside slopes down to the bottom. The wrong side of the hill is just straight Chablis, and then you get the almost identical hill the other side, uh, which is um, the big vineyard is called Montmain, but it's divided up between Montmain, Buteau, and Forêt. So foray wines tend to be a little bit richer and fuller bodied. It's more of a blue clay soil, whereas Vaillant is lots of limestone, uh, little limestone chips and stones. And it tends to be uh, a drier style of wine and sometimes with a little bit of a, a, a sort of a lemon scent at the back. I don't know if you're, if you're finding that in the wine, but those are the theoretical differences. Um, <clears throat> Michael, are you going to be our tasting master at your end? Sorry, we've been uh, we've been just been served the Monte de Tonnerre, and that is absolutely wonderful. Okay, before we get to that, I'd be in, uh, really interested in the feedback <laughs> between the Dover and the Much further than the Vian. I thought Foray, yeah. right? Texturally, the Foray has uh, it just has a full of full of fruit. Vian, yeah. yeah. it's just a little bit tart as well at the moment. Perhaps. In the glass, it seems to be improved. Well, also, it, it depends what you want out of your Chablis. The foray definitely has more flesh, but the vial. So, if you are um, eating oysters now, then you want to be with vial. It's the perfect, perfect oyster and other shellfish wine. But mm. uh, otherwise, just taken as a drink on its own, or with other sorts of food, then I think the foray is is going to be your 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 wine of the two. Yes. Between Dobisat and Ravenon, is there a preference? Yeah. <laughs> what? There's a big gap. Yeah. I feel like you're getting a lot more aromatic. In revenue. Yeah. There's much more energy. Yeah. Whereas the the Dovisa to me feels a little bit flat. Mm -hmm. A little bit kind of unexciting. A little bit limpid. Okay. Um, you know, I would have hoped better than that from Dovisa. One thing is true is that. An old-style way of looking after your barrels when they're not in use, and they try to keep them in use all the way through, is by giving them a sort of a sulfur treatment, which you often find a residual taste in the wine, where there is something that almost gives them an element of, a bit like tobacco, um, uh, but but something which can have a or a sour apple flavour. And I sometimes get that in Dovisar wines, but never in Raveneau. Right. I think that um, Vincent Dovisat has made great wines over a long period, 
But it's also possible that when the same person stays in place for 35, 40 years, it becomes a little bit too much of a, a ritual what they do. And they probably it needs his recipe might need refreshing there. Um, is a small feeling. I still appreciate the wines a lot, but I think Raveno has has taken the lead. And Vanar um, Raveno, having come in in 1995, I think was probably instrumental in that. But um, you get a fresher feel in, in his wines, and which probably allows the genuine aromatics of the wine to progress further. Yeah. Right, and now you've got um, Monte de Tonnerre and served with that also... Um, um, uh, the Chapelot as well. Uh, Chapelot is coming, right? But very exciting to try these two side by side, absolutely. Because Chapelot, of course, is part of Monte de Tonnerre, and in many vintages, they uh they sell it um uh, on that, but they just make one wine, they just make Monte de Tonnerre. It's only when they've got plenty of both and really like um the vintage that they will. Um, make a Chapelot separately. So Chapelot also came in, it started in about 1979-1980, in um, around that period. It, it started um, as a vineyard, the, I think a lease that uh, Jean-Marie Raveneau took over. Because to begin with, he started, while his father was still fully involved, I think Jean-Marie made some wines under his own label, which were a bit separate from what his father did. So since his father had Monte de Tonnerre, Jean-Marie used to bottle Chapelot. And they continue that in certain vintages. Um, now, actually, I've just been checking and I've got these figures uh, from the domain. Um, and it seems as though they've got a lot of Chapelot. But if I've got this right, let me just find it. So the figures I've got is Monte de Tonnerre, just over one hectare, 1.18, and Chapelot, 1.95. But you read elsewhere that they've only got 0.30 of Chapelot. And I think there is one plot of 0.30, and it's that plot, older vines, that they use to make a Chapelot in the years that they do it. And everything else that they've got goes into the Monte de Tonnerre. Mm. So this is Monte de Tonnerre is one of the two Premier Cru vineyards, which if anybody ever wanted to add any Grand Cru's, it would be Voleron and Monte de Tonnerre. Um, it's a lovely, pretty much south-facing vineyard. Continuation, it's the next one after the Grand Cruise, heading south, south and east. So it should be pretty special. Sorry, so Jasper, just to clarify, Monte de Tonnerre, so you can have Chapelot vineyards uh, blended into, you can call it Monte de Tonnerre, yeah. but not yes. all Monte de Tonnerre can be called Chapelot, right? Exactly that. There is a bit of Monte de Tonnerre, which is only Monte de Tonnerre. There's a bit which is called Pied d'Alou, which is where a lot of the Ravno vines are. There's a bit called Chapelot, and there's a bit called uh, Côte de Brechin, which is the least good bit because you start to go up a side valley there. Nobody else, as far as I know, has ever made a Chapelot Premier Cru, but uh, the young Vaucherets have got a vineyard called Bat de Chapelot, which is only at village level. So it's the flatter ground at the foot of Chapelot, and they make a separate bottling of Bader Chapelot. But as I say, that's straight Chablis, not coming through. <clears throat> but um, it's a nice name, Chapelot, and uh, you know I, I like it when people make separate bottlings of these individual subdivisions. 
What's your impressions of tasting Chablot versus Monte de Tonnerre when you're in the cellar? Um, the last couple of years when I've been, they haven't actually made both. I don't, I don't think they made them both even in 2018. Uh, so I might just um, uh, check that. Um, so I haven't done it consistently enough uh, to be able to give you a, um, uh, uh, a definite answer on that. But I think the Chapelot probably has a little bit more um, minerality and a little bit more finesse. And the Monte de Tonnerre is, is sort of broader based. Uh, I'm just looking on my site even as we speak. And yes, I did taste the 2018 Chapelot. And this is what I said about it. Tasted from a new 400 liter barrel, clear bright color with a green tint, no wood effect yet on the nose, has a sunshine feel, peaches at the back, very obviously a right bank style. Uh, i.e. it's the less um, marine in style, the less to have with shellfish, yet with excellent grip. Then tasted from an older wood, a 228-litre barrel, it was more closed in the nose, leaner on the palate, a bit more austere until the very back. So I gave it 92 to 96 points and five stars, B, um, and I'll see if I can find my note on the Monte de Tonnerre, which would have been taken at the same time. Um, but, 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 but it certainly looks as though I preferred the um, Chapelot because I wouldn't have given absolutely everything. Uh, I'd done that click. Um, that was tasted on another occasion. Uh, here we are, Monte Tonnerre, tasted at the same time, 92 to 95. So just a half, half a point less, four stars rather than five. And I'd say clear, bright colour with a green tint. There's volume of fruit here, but it's not insistent. Builds beautifully to the back of the palate, touch of bitters to counterbalance the undoubted brightness of the grape, which is doing the dance of the seven veils. There you go. So I like them both a lot. Jasper. The, yes. The, the Chapelot, to me, just feels that it, it needs air, it needs more time, versus the wanted to there, sort of, like you said, a richer style, it just seems to be more exuberant straight off the back. Yeah, so a bit more tension in the Chapelot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it can at this age, it can be a difference between one bottle and another, but uh, that doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, Mont Monte de Tonnerre does have, uh, you know, a flesh which um, uh, take takes the lead. Um, but certainly it's um, uh, well done, whoever put all this together to be able to get the Chapelot and the Monte de Tonnerre all inside each other. A rare treat. <laughs> I think we've got one more uh, premier crew to try, which is the Buto, the Buttocks. <laughs> and um, what's interesting about this wine is that it is actually the next door vineyard to Forêt. So it's grown over on the left bank. And uh, yet at this domain, they serve it in the middle of their right bank wines. And the way I feel about Buteau, which is sort of at the extreme west end of the Montmartre Valley, um, it's a wine which has the aromatics of the uh, left bank, um, and i.e. a little bit more marine, but it has the flesh and the body of the right bank. So it, it starts looking a bit more like Forêt and it finishes tasting more like Monte de Tonnerre. But you've got 1997, 
which is a very much overlooked um, vintage uh, because it wasn't great in Bordeaux and they got the price wrong in Bordeaux, so nobody thought anybody could have made good wine. Actually, it was a pretty sunny year. Um, it was quite warm at the harvest time, which made the fermentations go through a little bit quickly. So it, it, it's rarely going to be considered a great vintage, but it is better than most people think. And I would have thought a Ravenau Chablis at 24 years old should be in a really great place to drink. Have you got it yet? Yep. And? Advanced. Our sample is a little bit advanced. There's, yeah, it's possible. It's, it's a vintage that didn't have acidity, and so it may well be that it's uh, not maintained its freshness as well as it might. Right. Okay. Right. I've had the occasional Fiche Merceau 97 recently that was very nice, but it's normally it's a vintage you'd expect to have been drunk up. Mm. Oh, it's okay, right? Yeah. Now, I think if if they pulled the bottle out from the you know back of the cellar at Shea Raveneau and opened it for you there and then, I'm sure it would have been uh, um, still in very good condition, but um, something that's travelled maybe trickier. Mm. Okay. Um, shall I talk a little bit in theory about the remaining vineyards and which are uh, three Grand Crus from Raveneau? Plus, yeah, guest prayers from Dovisa. Um, and uh, also um, the vintages which are to come. I mean, if I then I'll leave you in in peace to because um, you're following this for dinner, you're having this for dinner, or is it just a tasting you're doing tonight, Michael? Uh, we're continuing through to, uh, through with dinner. I thought you probably would be. United yourselves, you might as well make an evening of it. Um, I'll, I'll just continue to sip my cup of tea if that's all right. <laughs> Never mind. Um, good. Um, I'm actually going, I'm having dinner tonight with two um, uh, people from Hong Kong who also have a house in Chevrolet Chambertin. You may know them, but um, David Hall Jones and PM Chan. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, anyway, I'm seeing them tonight. Uh, right, on we go. Um, so, uh, first of all, maybe a scamper through the uh, vintages. You're going to um, go one year younger in 2011, Les Clos. And 2011 isn't a brilliant year in, in Chablis. Uh, the good people did fine. The good old boys failed to ripen their grapes properly at all. And a second-rate producer in 2011 uh, would have been ugly. But a good producer uh, would be nice and should be fairly ready to drink, I would think, quite accessible. Eight and seven are vintages which, as in the Cote d'Or, um, were not the easiest of years. Um, it rained quite a lot in the summer. 2007 was a very early year, and a lot of the wines are a bit lacking in character, but the Grand Cru's are much, much are better. The Premier Cruise are quite a lot better than the regular Chablis, and the Grand Cruise are a lot better than the Premier Cruise. So I would expect the 2007 Valmure from Ravenau to be on cracking form. Uh, and eight was a vintage which is much more Chablisian in style. It was a year in which the it was a bit wind dried at the end more than sun dried. Um, these were the first two years of Mr. Sarkozy's presidency, and it sort of pretty much rained throughout. <laughs> Uh, as a welcome. Um, 
but uh, the grape stayed healthy uh, and there's quite a lot of intensity and there's a bit of that sort of marine iodine character. It's stronger in 2008 than it will be in 2007. Um, five, as you know, truly great vintage and red burgundy. In the whites, they're sometimes a bit too heavy. That could still be a very young Chablis or it could be showing uh, a lot of weight and not feeling quite in balance. Uh, I don't know. Um, but potentially that should be uh, a great wine with a long future. Um, 2001 was not such an easy year um, and probably less good in Chablis than further south. But um, various people have been telling me they've been drinking some O1 top-end Chablis and getting good results from them. Again, it's a wine I would expect to be close to its, its perfect moment. And I have a feeling that we've had, have we had that before? Let me see when we've we been together. Maybe we had no one, uh, Dovisa, I'm just having a look on uh, previous occasions. Don't seem to have got a note on that. Um, where do we go from there? 2000, only okay in the Cote d'Or and excellent in Chablis. Uh, 90, 2000, 2010, three years ending in zero, were all particularly good in Chablis. So, um, well, you had one wine which was corked, I think. Uh, is it one of those? I hope not. Might have been. Uh, the O1 Flow. Oh, oh, okay. Right. So we have a replacement. Ah. You have a replacement. Good. Of the same or something different? Uh, uh, hard enough to get the same wine twice. So I don't know. Don't worry, Jasper. I have reserved everything the same twice for you over when you come. Uh, we have, uh, was it a Monte de Tonnerre 2000 as the replacement? Oh, great. Well, so you're, you're, fra you're downgraded in vineyard, but you're upgraded in vintage. Um, and then after that, we go to 1996, 95, 93, 90. Uh, so 90 again, top rate. Um, Vintage, but that's the one wine which would be made by Jean-Marie rather than by Bernard. The 93 is from Vincent de Vissard. I would expect that to be very good. It's not a banner year for, um, for, for Chablis, um, uh, but uh, there was no problem with the vintage. Um, it was a, a little bit later than some, um, but I would expect that to be in a good place. Uh, and then 95 and 96, 95 is from Dovisa, Dovisa Camus because of a Dovisa married a Camus somewhere along the line. Um, but that would be made. It's the same wine as a Vincent or a René Dovisa wine. Um, from Preurs, which he actually prefers Preurs to Clos, but I'll come to really answer that. Um, and 96, which is a Jasper favourite, which lots of other people don't like because it's quite high acidity. But that 96, it'll be really interesting to see how that's showing at the moment, whether, whether it's got into balance, whether it's still showing a little higher acidity. So then you've got Blanchot, Valmior, and Clos, and the Preurs from Dovisat as the vineyards. Um, so we'll start with Preurs because it's at the uh, northern end. And uh, it would be fun if you have the time, if you haven't already seen it, one of the um, television programs I've done with 67 Pound Mile, which you can get on their site and the sort of catch up bit, is a walk through all the Grand Cru's of Chablis, in which I, I begin in Bougreau and Preuse in second, and I bump into a vigneron in each vineyard, and the vigneron has a nice bottle of his wine in each vineyard, and I have a couple of Zalto glasses with me, 
And as long as one of us has remembered a corkscrew, we walk through all the Grand Cru vineyards from, from northern end to southern end, meeting producers. And in Preuss, it was Vincent Dovisseur, and I finished in Blanchot with the young, genera- young generation of uh, Ravenos. So anyway, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed doing that programme. And most of Preuss is sitting on the plateau and is thought of as being good, but not one of the top Grand Cru's. Except that the Dovisard bit sort of slides over the edge of the plateau and comes down into the valley of Vaudisier. And Vaudisier, for me, is the best of the Grand Cru's after Le Clos. And this Preuss is, is halfway towards being a Vaudisier, is, is, is really a magical one. And it's not that it's better than uh, Dovisard's Clos, but it's just the one, his heart is more in Le Preuss. Um, then we have uh, Clos and Valmure. And uh, Valmure arrived, I think, um, if I've got it right, uh, arrived in 1979 for the first time. Um, Vaudésir, the Valley of Desire, and Valmure, the Ripe Valley, uh, the the two valleys which sort of stick back into the hillside amongst the Grand Cru's. And this is a pretty ripe site, and it makes quite a spicy wine. Uh, Very good, Chez Refino, not always as successful with other people. but to me, it's the most Cote d'Or-like of the Southern Grand Cru's uh, in style. And Clos, for almost everybody, thinks Clos is the best. Um, it is uh, a sort of southwest-facing vineyard. The whole vineyard is all facing in the same direction. The others have dips and turns in them, but Clos is very consistent. Um, and uh, so the Reveno Clos will be the most stylish and you get an absolute feeling of sort of a bench of limestone you get a very pure white fruit in Lake Clos. and finally Blanchot well that name means sort of little white in French um, this is the most different of the Grand Cru's because the others form a solid line all facing much in the same direction apart from their twists and turns and then the hillside turns quite sharply up a valley facing Monte de Tonnerre but um, the Blanchot is more on the south flank. And uh, it starts low down by the main road and it finishes really quite high up, the highest up of them all. And the Raveneau holding, they have two plots, but they're both high up, really right at the top. And it's a wonderful, quiet spot away from everything else, really white soil. And it makes wines of great precision and finesse. So, and you've got two wonderful vintages in 1996. So I have no idea how they're going to taste, um, but um, you will have that advantage today. But I've given you, I hope, a little bit of the background of the theory behind them. So, um, thoughts, questions? Um, Hey, Jasper, do you have any view on this Chablis producer, Besson? Yes, yes. Jean-Claude Besson, who is the most pessimistic uh, vigneron I've ever met in any region. <laughs> the only time I saw him smile uh, was when I asked him how his 2017 harvest had gone, and a smile came on his face. He said it's the best year we could possibly have had weather-wise, apart from the week in April when the frost destroyed the whole crop. <laughs> um, but he made. <laughs> He makes a lovely Valmure, 
uh, and some other very good wines. He's somebody I, I, I first, I tasted his 1990, which is one of his earliest vintages, and I started buying that. So uh, I worked with him commercially all the way through. Um, but he's a good guy. Um, otherwise, I mean, I beg your pardon? If this man is onto that, then you know this quality yeah. He's under the radar. Yeah. Just how many barrels did he make for the Lecol? Uh, so in Lake Clos, he has got, uh, I think it's half a hectare, might be. Uh, <laughs> a half a hectare would oh, give you, um, I don't know, it'll give you sort of six or eight barrels, something like that. Uh, so it's not a huge amount. Um, but look. Oh. Um, the tip here, he's got exactly half a hectare. He's got 0.75 of Valmure and 0.68 of Blanchet. So, uh, close like the smallest. Um, the way to get your best value out of Revenot or Dovisat is to drink them in France and restaurants because they sell a huge proportion of their crop into restaurants and they work with restaurateurs who agree not to uh, put on more than a standard markup. So, for example, there is um, a restaurant in Bone at the moment where you can drink 2014 Village Chablis from Ravenel at 40 euros a bottle. Uh, and you can drink the Premier Cruise at under 100. There are several restaurants in Chablis where you can drink the Premier Cruise at under 100 and the Grand Cruise at not much over 100. Whereas um, one of you will be bound to know the current market value of a Grand Cru from Ravenel. Um, what secondary market price? Anybody got a view? But I should think yeah. you're getting out several hundred pounds a bottle. Thousand pounds. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, six thousand. Yeah. You know, and the Ravenos know that perfectly well, but but uh, it's not what they want to do. Um, they want as many people as possible to be able to drink it at the real price of, you know, a uh, hundred euros maximum. Um, and uh, if people trading it afterwards, well, so what? They can't do anything about that. But that it's going to vanish. I didn't hear the beginning of that, sorry. In January, they are not very easy to print marks. In January, they are not very easy to print marks, right? Uh, right, in, yes. Um, I, Dovisa has had some Primox problems, uh, though he denies it because he's not found it in, in the winery. I've never had any problems with my bottles of it. But I, I, maybe a 2008 in a restaurant once. Ravenel, there's been much less, um, unless any of you have had some bad experiences. In general, I haven't really seen Cremox with Ravenel. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I want to get away from the idea that only Ravenel and, and Dovisa are making great wine in Chablis. But I have to say, I do think um, they remain pretty much out at the top. William Fevre is a different style, which I like a lot. Um, Michael was thinking of putting in a William Fair wine, but it'd be so different in style to what these guys are doing. Uh, Dovisar is genuinely comparable. Um, and it'll be really interesting when you come to the Grand Cruise and you you see a Dovisar alongside a, a Ravenel. I'd love to, love to know how that came out. Um, otherwise, I really like what um, Samuel Bio is doing at the moment. Um, B-A-L-L-A-U-D. Um, and uh, and a few others, but uh, um, at the moment, in very recent vintages, Ravenel stays out, out in front. 
Right. Um, more thoughts, more questions? If not, at some point I will leave you in peace to enjoy your wine and your dinner. <laughs> Any last questions? Silence. Just oh. one, Jasper, yes, just because I was listening to a podcast uh, with William Kelly, um, just about, and it was more talking about the closed door and just global warming, so to speak, and what will happen, probably more in terms of vineyard work. In Chablis, that's, I've never heard anybody talk about this in Chablis. And do you, are, oh, you, yeah, seeing, yeah. are you seeing them change their, yeah. their, yes, their, their training? It's an issue in Chablis too. Um, but what is fascinating, mm -hmm. you probably heard tell of the rootstocks which are dying in the Côte d'Or, particularly one yep. called 16149. That is absolutely thriving in Chablis in current conditions. Uh, it's the one place it's doing well. But the one they had more of, which is called 41B, that's really suffering. So they've got the same issue. It's just a different rootstock. The other thing in Chablis is the vines are a little bit further apart. And it's a very white soil, which means that in the hot years, the sun is bouncing off the soil and sort of grilling the underside of the grapes as well as grilling the tops. And because the rows are a bit further apart, um, there's, you know, a, a little bit less canopy. Uh, so that's something that they're having to reflect on and try and build. They don't want to go higher necessarily, but they want the canopy to be a bit wider. So there are things like that they're having to think about. Um, so, yes, it is an issue. And, uh, I mean, the only good thing is in these last quite a few years when there's been big frost damage, Chablis is better equipped to fight against the frost, at least in the top Premier Crew and the Grand Crew vineyards. Um, because they've installed various systems, either electric cables or else water aspersion systems, which give them protection. Whereas down in the Cote d'Or, uh, none of that infrastructure is in place. Yeah. Okay. Well, I await eagerly to hear the reports of uh, of which wines uh, shine um, tonight. Of what you've tasted so far, it sounds as though 2010... Um, uh, well, the three Raveneau 2010s seem to have come through really well. Um, yeah. yeah, the Monte de Tonnerre really stand out. Chablot, very nice as well, actually. You, you see yeah. the, you see the, what you exactly what you're describing. Yeah, that uh, slighter refinement and elegance coming through. But the power on the Monte de Tonnerre is a notable step up. Right. Good. Well, look, uh, I'm going to see you guys uh, next week, I think, with um, Domaine de la Pousteau. If, uh, yes, yes, yes. If you're coming along to that. And um, Very much well, looking forward to it. Back and uh, go and pick a few more grapes.